Good morning and welcome to the latest edition of the Estate Agents podcast. Uh, I'm joined by my ever faithful co-presenters Stephen Brown and Luke St. Clair. Morning guys. Morning, how are we? Good morning. Very, very good. Yesterday there was a certain football match that uh, we won't talk about Stephen but the result was phenomenal. Next. So today, yes, anyone would think his team lost 4 2 yesterday. Let's enjoy it. And also, Leicester City managed to win as well. So, even better. For Next, weekend. absolutely. Okay, guys, today we've got one of the best 100, uh, sorry, 100 best business speakers in Britain. Um, he's in considerable demand as a motivational business speaker, conference chairman and interviewer, formerly the UK managing director of Robert Half International, a leading international recruitment consultancy and business manager to none other than Sir Clive Woodward. We are absolutely privileged to be in the company today of Mr. Jeff Grout. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning. Uh, pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Fantastic. Jeff, you are um, an independent business consultant specialising in leadership, people management, team building, peak performance, recruitment and retention issues. Um, and as I'm sure you're aware, our uh, real estate, estate agency market is um, heading for all in challenging times in certain areas of the UK at the moment. Um, staff motivation is being described by some of our listeners as at an all-time low. How do we remedy that as business owners, managers and colleagues? Well, I think certainly the first thing one has to uh, ensure is that you always uh, celebrate those successes, even if they're small successes uh, along the way. But it's about making people feel uh, engaged. Um, and therefore, if they feel engaged, they're likely to volunteer more in terms of effort. And therefore, it's the uh, it's the role of the uh, uh, the manager or the uh, the owner um, to ensure that people feel part of the organisation, uh, and that is discussing plans, discussing what the the future might look like, but very much giving everybody uh, within the business uh, a voice that they have uh, an opinion, and that opinion counts. And how do you give them a voice, and how do you get them more engaged? Well, to give them a voice, you make sure that uh, communication in the business is very much a dialogue, very much two-way. Um, too often in business, uh, business leaders default uh, to telling, um, whereas what people want within the business is they want a conversation. Uh, therefore, it's creating uh, opportunities for two-way communication where people can uh, express their opinions. No, that's um, brilliant. So ha have you seen any examples of where you've seen exceptional businesses put that into practice, Jeff? Well, I think it's being conscious uh, that maybe in a, in a large audience, let's say you get the whole firm together, um, people feel maybe a bit, uh, a bit inhibited uh, to actually express their views. So therefore, it means that maybe creating opportunities for one-to-one -one communication or communicating with smaller teams within the business. Um, and maybe creating some way where it's safe for people to um, uh, ask questions. Um, years ago, I interviewed the, the founder of The Body Shop, um, a lady called Anita Roddick, and I said, how, how do you ensure good two-way communication? And she said that um, when people join the, the, uh, the Body Shop, they uh, receive an induction manual, and in that induction manual is a packet of scarlet red envelopes. And if someone has um, uh, a suggestion or a complaint, 
they can put it in this red envelope and they can send it to the board. Now they could do this anonymously, but if they identified themselves, then the board had a stated obligation to respond to them within five working days. Uh, but that, but that wow. wasn't all. Um, uh, in the uh, men's and women's toilets were large white marker boards and marker pens. And uh, at five uh, o'clock every Friday, uh, Anita Roddick's PA would go into the, uh, the gents' toilets, uh, the ladies' toilets, and uh, she would copy down all the graffiti and she would send it to every uh, member of the, uh, of the senior management team. And Anita Roddick said, well, of course, we now know uh, that Jonathan and Suzanne are having an affair, but we also know what the staff are feeling. And it's creating those opportunities where people can express themselves and have a voice. <laughs> no, brilliant. And they're the kind of uh, ideas that any business could Absolutely. implementing. So the, the idea envelope, if someone wants to remain anonymous or also put the head above the parapet, but also just that, that kind of tip about um, not doing it in large groups, because sometimes you, you do find, and we find that, if you get everyone together in a large group, that some people are fearful of speaking up just in case they that they feel like they're going to yeah. get shot down. We don't shoot anyone down. Any idea or suggestion is, is welcoming and we'll, and we'll discuss it. Um, so now some fantastic tips there for, for anyone uh, running or working within a business. Can I just um, ask a question on something you uh, mentioned there, Jeff, please? Yeah. So you talked about one-to-ones and um, in a lot of, uh, there's a lot of Facebook groups out there um, and they talk about how frequently should you have one-to-ones with your staff? How do you make them interesting? Um, some people think they're an excuse for a pay rise. Um, so what advice would you give to um, people who conduct one-to-ones and what should they be asking? Well, I suppose one could argue, uh, are, are these uh, a formal one-to-one, -one, uh, such as an appraisal of some kind, in which case I would say um, anywhere between two and four of these formal appraisals uh, would be valuable in any given year. But if one's talking about those informal chats, it might be uh, an informal chat by the coffee machine. Um, it might be uh, just an informal chat to uh, someone working to, walking to the car park or whatever. Uh, we need to be doing that all the time. And, um, you know, there's one thing that um, uh, an owner of a business, um, um, you know, can't do too much of, and that is communication. Uh, and therefore, communicating, listening, uh, you know, in fact, listening to what's really being said, uh, very, very important. And, um, you know, leaders need to ask good questions, uh, ask good questions, and then listen. And could you give us some examples of some good questions, please? Well, in fact, um, uh, I interviewed uh, a few years ago um, a gentleman called Greg Dyke, who was the former director general of the BBC. And um, he spent uh, his first two or three months with the BBC traveling around various locations. Uh, and he asked two great questions. Uh, question one was, uh, tell me one thing we should do to improve our service to the viewer or listener. And secondly, tell me one thing I should do to improve your life at work? And they're two great questions and they can be used inside any business, any company, whereby the focus is in how can I improve things to the, the customer, but also how can I make things better for people internally? And it's amazing the, uh, the, the type of responses that people get. 
No, I can quite uh, quite quite believe that. Now I'm interested to because uh, I quite admire Richard Branson. Uh, listen, read his books, and I can see that you've uh, had an interview or met with him. What what what's he like? What's he like as a as a person, but also as a business leader? Well, first of all, he, he, he's a very genuine, down to earth bloke. Uh, I very much enjoyed uh, meeting with him. Um, I would say um, at times he's um, uh, a little nervous. Uh, maybe a little socially uh, ill at ease. Uh, in fact, at the uh, end of this interview, um, he gave me a man hug and he said, I hope that was okay. Um, <laughs> which I thought was rather nice for someone who's worth $5 billion. Yeah, no, no, def de no definitely. Just goes to show we, we all sometimes have our own insecurities sometimes. Yes, and, and humility. I mean, you know, good, good leaders, um, you know, display humility. Yes, no, no fan fantastic. Um, just want to touch on something um, that we talked about earlier and um, where we talked about getting people together in a group and, and that's around this um, fear of rejection. Everyone has a fear of being rejected, whether or not estate agents have a fear of being rejected by their vendor not choosing them or their boss by not giving them praise or not uh, rewarding them how would you suggest and recommend anyone kind of deals with uh, rejection well I think it's one of these things I think either you are resilient or you're not and therefore I think one of the attributes that uh, you should be looking for if you're hiring staff is resilience uh, a certain level of tenacity but people who, who can sort of brush themselves down and say right okay I'm gonna I'm gonna you know get up again and I'm gonna get, come back even even stronger even better and uh, and sometimes when we are looking to hire we really aren't as clear as we should be on exactly what we're looking for and uh, resilience will be one quality that I think would be very important that's really interesting. Um, Jeff, you, you mentioned hiring on attitude and, and training for the skill. Ahead of your appearance today with us on this podcast, we invited some listener questions. Um, and there's a business owner that would like to remain anonymous, but has made the observation um, that certainly when recruiting for entry level positions within the industry at the, at the moment, he describes this millennial culture, this snowflake society, this um, almost um, entitlement um, yeah. to bigger positions, better packages, etc. Um, and they'd like to know how you'd overcome that and, and how you would set the interview questions up and possibly even before the interview stage, the, the advert uh, advertisement um, to not attract that kind of client. Well, I think, first of all, I think sometimes it's a bit dangerous to um, paint everybody with the same brush. So um, whilst there may be some broad differences between um, millennials and maybe previous or earlier uh, generations, um, I still find uh, that there are, there are people with the right qualities, the right characteristics that will make them successful in, uh, in the type of roles that you might be recruiting. Um, and too often, uh, I would say business owners are not looking for the right things. Um, I would say to be successful, there are three key characteristics that I would be looking for. Uh, one, um, I would call driving determination. Um, and that is an, an irresistible desire to be successful. Now, that might be to prove someone wrong. It might be to be better than the next person. 
it might be to achieve a personal best, but there's some real inherent drive to be successful. Um, I remember in, in, in my business, one of my most successful consultants um, was driven by the fact that we published in our, um, in our offices league tables uh, of our top people. And he wanted to get that number one slot. And once he got that number one slot, that was more important to him than anything else. So someone with driving determination sets um, challenging goals and objectives for themselves. Um, they may decide they want to get a, a, a sports car or whatever, and they set a date by which they'll get that. Um, not only do they have that resilience, but they are persistent. They don't give up easily. Um, so that will be the first quality. Uh, the second one I call interpersonal uh, effectiveness, and that's the ability to work within a team environment, but much more so the ability to influence and persuade, uh, the ability to convince, to cajole someone. So someone with very, very good uh, interpersonal skills, but the ability to, uh, to persuade. And then the third one is what I call self-management, which is partly about being self-motivated, but also someone who um, meets commitments, who juggles priorities, someone who always does what they say they're going to do. They always meet their commitments. And I would say that any highly successful uh, estate agent, whatever, will possess those three characteristics in abundance. So one is making sure you look for the right thing. And then it is asking the right questions in order that we get the evidence that we want. And I'm not interested in, in impressions or feelings. I always want to know what is the evidence that the person has these type of characteristics. I don't know about you two, but I'm frantically scribbling lots Sc and lots scribbling of notes, notes. <laughs> um, with, with, with all of these, but and then suddenly uh, thinking and assessing everyone that we have in our business now as well with those three key characteristics. So, uh, so and, and a lot of them are ticking all the boxes, which is uh, quite quite reassuring. So, um, what? what Andy um, mentioned that you're the business manager to Clive Woodward. Um, what what are the lessons that you've learned from working with Clive? Well, first of all, I should say I was the business manager to Sir Clive Woodward between uh, 2002 and 2006, uh, during the period when England won the Rugby World Cup. Um, so that's all down when to Clive you, Jeff. <laughs> nothing down to me <laughs> at all, but I do remember vividly um, being at uh, his last speaking engagements before he um, he went to Australia, and uh, he was taking questions and answers at the end of his presentation, and someone said, um, "Who's going to win the Rugby World Cup?" And uh, he responded that the difference in ability, the difference in talent between the top three or four teams was absolutely negligible, and uh, he said uh, the tournament will be one in the head. And he was talking about very much the, uh, the mental aspects of performance. And in fact, it caused me to uh, write a book called Mind Games, which explores how elite uh, sportsmen and women prepare and perform. perform. And uh, certainly his intention uh, going down to Australia for the 2003 World Cup was that England would be uh, the best prepared team in the world. So uh, I would say attention to detail, was really important, uh, going over little things and trying to improve 100 things uh, by 1%. Uh, 
And too often we're trying to look for one huge improvement. But if one focuses on lots of different things and one can aggregate those improvements and, and achieve something which is quite substantial. But also one characteristic that um, Clive Woodward had, which I believe all successful people possess, is uh, an almost childlike sense of curiosity. Um, they look for quicker way of doing things, better ways of doing things, cheaper ways of doing things, but they're not satisfied with the way things are. It's, it's almost like the grit in the oyster. They are constantly, if you like, um, uh, scratching an itch or something. How can we do this better? And I think successful people um, never say to themselves, this is the way we do it here, because they're constantly looking for a better way of doing it. That's brilliant. Constantly evolving, constantly evolving. So we've talked about um, various um, topics. What I'm really interested to understand from you, Jeff, is how do you feel you can build the best culture within your team, office, organization? Um, what does that look like to Jeff? Well, to me, it's letting the team uh, build the culture. Uh, I, I find it uh, quite humorous in a way that some very, very big, um, big well-known brands <coughs> will just come up with um, a set of um, cultural statements or, or, or a set of um, uh, words or sayings that uh, they get from some marketing consultancy. Um, to me, it's about getting everybody um, uh, involved in the business so they feel a sense of belonging, but also they feel that they're shaping the culture. Um, and consequently, uh, often personal recognition comes into it. So um, us, us catching people doing things right uh, and, and, and telling them so. Um, again, making sure that everybody, senior and junior, feels part of it. Um, so again, it's about catching people doing things right and, and giving them positive feedback. Um, it's very high levels of two-way communication. Uh, so those one-to-one -one meetings, either formal or informal, uh, that's important. And then again, celebrating successes. Um, and these might be small little regular prizes, little competitions. But again, this should be very much um, uh, determined after consultation uh, with everybody that within the business. Uh, and not just listening to the salespeople, look, listening to everybody, back office or front office, because they've all got um, something worth saying, something worth hearing. Brilliant. That's great advice. Stephen, I know you've got a question. Jeff, thank you. I'm, I'm getting so much from it. Um, can I just go back to um, sports? You know, I know you've worked with Ben Aidsley and, um, and yep. Johnson from the England team and Clive Woodward. And, um, you know, you talked a lot about the marginal gains, these little 1% and looking for the processes. Yep. Um, but what other tips can you give us from these elite, elite athletes? You know, what are they doing that... Um, we can learn from um, as business owners, as managers, as trainers, um, or, you know, or on the floor? Well, I'd say um, a couple of things. One is how they set goals and objectives. Um, in fact, they're far more effective at setting goals and objectives than maybe we are in the, in the business world. Um, one of the people I interviewed for my book, Mind Games, uh, was the um, British uh, Olympic swimmer uh, called Adrian Morehouse. Yep. Um, Adrian Morehouse planned to become Olympic champion at the age of 12. He'd watched on television his fellow countryman, David Wilkie, win a gold medal 
for Great Britain at the Montreal Olympics way back in 1976. The very next day, he walked into his local swimming baths in Yorkshire. Uh, he went up to one of the coaches and he said to the coach, I want to be Olympic champion. And uh, instead of telling him to go and play in the shallow ends, the coach took him deadly seriously and said, um, if you're going to be Olympic champion, what's going to be your winning time? And of course, this 12 year old didn't have a clue. And uh, the coach and uh, Adrian sat by the poolside and uh, they spent the next 20 or 30 minutes discussing and ultimately predicting the winning time of the 100 meters uh, breaststroke. And uh, they came up with a winning time. Uh, and this was going to be eight years into the future when Morehouse was 20. And they said a time of 63 seconds. The coach then turned to Adrian and said, what's your fastest time? And Morehouse said, uh, 78 seconds and that 15 second gap was completely impossible it was insurmountable until the coach broke it down by year by month by week by day and he illustrated to the 12 year old if he improved his performance by less than one five thousandth of a second per day he could indeed be olympic champion but that wasn't all he said where did you come in this year's uh, local under 13 championships and Morehouse said, uh, I, won, uh, I won the bronze medal. And uh, the coach then said, right, our first objective is to win the local championships. We'll then enter the Yorkshire championships. We'll then enter the North of England championships. And he broke it down to make it achievable. As I started uh, interviewing uh, other uh, elite sportsmen and women, I found they all had the same goal setting process. So the first thing they set is the outcome goal. Uh, the outcome goal for um, Adrian Morehouse was to be Olympic champion. Uh, once they've set the outcome, they attach that to that, the performance goal. And in Adrian Morehouse's case, the performance goal was 63 seconds. So by the age of 12, he'd set the goal that he wanted to be Olympic champion. He'd set the fact that he would have to swim two lengths of the pool in 63 seconds. And then uh, he attached to that a number of process goals. And the process goals were describing how to achieve that performance. And the process goals included uh, diets and nutrition. Uh, the process goals included a training schedule, both in the pool and in the gym. Um, it uh, involved uh, working with a coach and a training partner. It involved style and technique. Um, and it also involved mental preparation. And if you listen uh, to uh, sportsmen and women as they're interviewed, um, what you'll uh, hear them say, if you wish to achieve your outcome, you must focus entirely on the process. And an Olympic champion has a real discipline around the process. Um, you know, you and I might come home from work. Uh, we've uh, promised ourselves we're going to go for a run, but it's pouring with rain. And we'll say, well, I won't do it tonight, but I'll, I'll do it tomorrow. The Olympic champion gets their kit on, even though it's pouring with rain, and they go out and have the discipline to make sure they hit that training schedule that they had in their training log, training diary. Brilliant, thank you. Um, one of the things we used to do at Green & Company was that around about now, we would ask everybody to set their goals for the following year um, to yep. make sure they were all smart goals. Everybody um, was then asked to produce a collage as well, which they would either put on the front of their computer, they would, um, or they would go in, you know, in, in the walls in the office. So that would inspire them all every time um, that they could see them. So if they wanted to get a lovely sports car, if they wanted to go on a holiday, they had something there um, to do that. 
Um, Sounds good. But I remember you telling me that story oh, about 15 years ago, and I share it a lot. People look at me now and think, who is Adrian Morehouse? <laughs> so I'm definitely show my age. I have, to make, I have to make sure there's people my age in that room who can remember yeah. it. Um, but uh, no, I remember that story. Um, and there's loads of other great stories as well out there as well. Um, so David Brailsford also, so was just out of interest, because I'm fascinated by marginal gains. Was yeah. Sir Clive Woodward the first one? Um, or has it come from Sir Dave Brailsford? Or is it, you know, just um, grown um, more and no, more people I, I think, been talking from it? No, I just think a number of people recognised is that there are very few opportunities for a big change that makes a significant improvement. Otherwise, people would have chosen it uh, already. Um, yes, obviously, there are those you know, disruptive forces that come into play. So undoubtedly, um, social media and the internet is impacting your industry. Um, and uh, you know, that, that will have ramifications going forward. Um, but it is much easier to uh, involve everybody to find out what are, what are those little things that we can make um, a, a big difference. And, uh, you know, I know one company who um, ran a very successful campaign for about three months, uh, which was just called Say Say What You See. Um, and it was, if you see any inefficiency, say, say, say it out loud. Uh, if you see something which you think is working very well. So it's very much about getting people within the business just share ideas in terms of how they might get better. And many of these improvements were just these small incremental improvements. I love those marginal gains and it's something that Stephen has, has talked about and Stephen's mentored me now for a few years. So by rights, I should be about 1,200% <laughs> better in four years, shouldn't I, Steve? <laughs> um, just one final question, if if I may, please, Jeff. Um, you talk about the, the right culture um, and interviewing, taking on the, the, the right staff and the right mix for your team. I'd really like to know from you, if you could share with our listeners your three best interview questions, what would they be and why? Well, I think one area that we don't tend to um, focus enough on is um, uh, someone's values. And uh, we need to understand a candidate's values for, for two reasons. One, will this person fit into the culture of our, of, of our organization? So are they the right fit? And often recruitment goes wrong because someone's not the right fit. But secondly, if I can understand your values, I get an insight in terms of how you will behave. And consequently, I would say most of your people listening uh, will not uh, be focused on someone's values at the interview. My first recommendation is they should be. Um, so in terms of how do you get an insight into those values, then again, it's about asking good questions. Uh, I would say uh, a good question might be, um, uh, when have your values been compromised? That might be a good question. But I think maybe a better pair of questions would be, um, first of all, um, when have you been asked to do something that made you feel uncomfortable? And of course, the second question is, what did you do? And therefore, are your values strong enough that you refused to do it, didn't do it? Uh, and that's why the person is now having an interview with you because they're looking to change employer. Uh, or did they go ahead and do it anyway, despite the fact it compromised their values? So something around that, uh, I think, would be uh, a, a good one. Um, I, I always start off with 
uh, a very, very broad question, which is simply, tell me about your current job. And where the person uh, starts in terms of their response can be instructive. Uh, for example, if they talk about their personal success, it tells you something about them. Uh, if they immediately talk about their team, it tells you something very different. Uh, if, it, uh, if they talk about uh, some of their uh, vendors and whatever, so again, where, where do they start? Or maybe it's their relationship with their boss, but where they start is, uh, it can be very instructive. But what's important is, is that we really listen to what the person's saying. And uh, do we pick up um, some hesitation? Um, you know, what, what, you know are, are there certain things that we hear differently? So very important that we listen very, very carefully to what the person's saying. But they, they might be questions that, uh, that people find helpful. I think they're phenomenal. Yeah, some killer, some killer questions in there that, uh, that we can all take away. And again, uh, we can gone through about eight pages of notes so far, which is uh, fantastic. Particularly so, the values, Luke. I've, yeah. I, I don't know about you as a business owner, but for me as a manager, when I've interviewed at, at the initial stage, never ask questions to drill into somebody's values. And that's something that will change as of today. So, and Jeff, I think, I thank and you And another that. way to get an insight into those values is to explore um, who's had or what has had a major influence on them. Um, so a, a question I often ask will be, tell me about the most significant person and the most significant event in your life. And then you, again, you'll get some insight in terms of that person's psyche, their values and, and uh, how they might behave. So that's the four questions we've now managed <laughs> to get handy. So <laughs> that, That's definitely added value, isn't it? <laughs> added some extra value I like, I like that how you came in then Andy and managed to extract a little bit more value there <laughs> so Jeff it's been a real pleasure um I've probably found this one of the most useful uh half an hours of my life with uh, the notes and content I've taken and I'm sure Stephen and, and Andy both agree uh, I know Andy will be making uh lots and lots and lots of notes so really appreciate absolutely uh, on this Monday morning when we're recording this. So it's uh, it's a goodbye from me. And a good goodbye from me. Cheers, Cheers Thank guys. Thank you so it's much, Jeff. All the best. Bye. Thank you. So if, uh, if anyone out there is listening, hopefully we have more than six listeners from when we last checked with Stephen, <laughs> um, then please rate uh, and review our podcast. If you didn't like it, then please rate and review a different podcast. So thank you very much. <laughs>